Ephesians. We're continuing in a series where together we are reading through this wonderful little book of the Bible. And we are in the middle of chapter 2. And uh, our, our text today, Roz, if you bring up my PowerPoint, our text today was actually on television uh, at the Sugar Bowl. You watched football. And did you see the quarterback for Florida and his eyeshadow? He had, he had Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And probably millions of people looked at that, and as the, as the camera would go in on him, there would be moment after moment. You know, I know people who were converted through watching that guy with the John 3.16 sign. I, I, it's just a woman watching the World Series in my old church. She saw it. She said, what is that all about? Went upstairs, got a Bible, blew the dust off, looked in the table of contents, looked up the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, read it and said, oh, is that true? That must be true. And she was converted. So I wonder how many people yesterday or on uh, New Year's Day, on Friday, opened their Bibles. What is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which in God's providence is our text for today? Actually, verse 10 is our text. We looked at 8 and 9 two weeks ago, but I'll read it all. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. And now our text for this morning. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. For some reason, I have the wrong... Was I? No, that's not what I want. There we are. Three phrases. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you look at your outline, we're just going to work through this, get a few observations from this and apply it to our lives. As we come into the year 2010, We'll look at Ephesians 2, 10. What do you say? Do you say 2010 or 2010? How many say 2010? 2010? Okay. How many say 2010? Okay. We're about evenly divided. This is good. This is good. we'll, We'll have it figured out by the end of the year. But I find that this is one of the most encouraging statements in all of Scripture. And I want you to uh, not let it get lost because of the majesty of verses 8 and 9. We saw in verses 8 and 9, it is by grace you are saved through faith so that no one can boast. Your salvation is all of grace, not by works. You could never do enough good works to earn your salvation. It's not by works. Clearly, it's by grace. And we revel in that truth, don't we? But then perhaps we miss this verse that completes the thought, and it's marvelous. 
We are God's workmanship. That's the first part of this. What does it mean that you are now, if you're in Christ, you are His workmanship? Well, I think it means, in some sense, that you are a portrait, I'll even call it a self-portrait, of God. And if you've studied your Old Testament in the book of Genesis, you learn that every human being is made in the image of God. We're all made in the image of God. God is a moral being. You are a moral being with a conscience. God is a social being. Even the Trinity itself is very uh, social. And there's a communion within the Godhead. And you are made in the image of God with a longing for intimacy and fellowship with other people. You are a purposeful, creative being. God is the creator. You have creative impulses in yourself because you are made in the image of God. These things are all true. And so you are, in that sense, a self-portrait of God, and every human being on the face of the earth carries that stamp of God's image on them. But the word here for workmanship is unique. It's the Greek word poema that sounds like the word poem, and, uh, and our word poem in that sense of, of, a, of a literary masterpiece, of a beautiful statement And one of the great New Testament scholars, F.F. Bruce, an old stodgy Englishman, he gets carried away and he said, this passage says, you are God's masterpiece. A sculpture, it's not limited to poetry, but sculpture or canvas painting or whatever creative uh, expression you appreciate, you are God's masterpiece. And it didn't begin with your creation. Now there is an acceleration. And I'm going to have to go back up to that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Because if anyone is in Christ, the Bible says, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. So God did not finish recreating you when he recreated you, when he began that process of new life in you. But now you go on growing and developing as a part of his new creation. You are God's amazing masterpiece. Well, the second phrase says you are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What does this mean? It means that God is working a change in every one of us who belongs to Christ. In a couple of months, we're going to come to chapter 4 in these verses, 22 through 24. But I couldn't wait because they're such an expression of what he is doing in our lives. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Okay? You continue to have this battle with uh, corruption, deceitful desires. I struggle with that. You hear me confess my sins. They continue to plague me, and yet God won't let me. He loves you. He loves you just as you are, but He loves you too much to stay just as you are. Does that make sense to you? And so you are made new in the attitude of your minds to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, there's all kinds of therapy out there, cognitive therapy. You know, cognitive therapy, it it says, think right, act right, think right, feel right. 
But the problem with secular cognitive therapy is that ultimately it doesn't teach you how to think right. How do you learn to think right? You learn to think right by putting on the new attitude in your minds that you learn from the Lord Jesus Christ, that you learn from the Word of God. And as you learn to think God's thoughts after Him, because the words of Scripture are laid up in your heart, right? David says, Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And you're made new. You're conformed to Jesus Christ in the attitude of your mind. And guess what? Your actions change. Your thoughts and feelings change. You're made new in holiness, in righteousness. But, but, there's one particular aspect of this change that Paul focuses on in our text this morning. And it is that if you're new in Jesus Christ, you will do good works. You will do good works in Christ Jesus. It's not be good for goodness sake. Have any of you seen the uh, Atheist Society? Now has bought signs on the buses in London and in New York. Uh, the Atheist Society says, be good for goodness sake. You know, let's get rid of God. Let's just be good. The problem, of course, is who gets to define what goodness is. God defines what goodness is. And so you learn to serve. You know, G- uh, Jesus did some amazing things in teaching his people how to serve. One day he got down on his knees, took up a towel, remember that? And what did he do with that towel? He washed the feet of his disciples. Now, when I was in college, I worked on a construction site, and um, the, 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 the project manager, his name was Kenny, Kenny called me every day, Yenchko, get over here. He said, last night, I went to my wife's cousin's church. You're a Christian, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to my wife's cousin church. You know what they did? They washed each other's feet. He said, I was disgusted. He says, is that what being a Christian is about? And I said to him, you know, Kenny, take off your boots. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I said, you know, do you know where that comes from? He said, no, where does it come from? And we turn to John chapter 13, where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And he said, I give you an example that you should do as I've done for you. To serve each other. He said, oh. If God is making you new, if he is renewing you, Paul says, you will do good works. In Christ Jesus, as Jesus is formed in you, you're part of his new creation. I thought it was wonderful. I asked Rachel about it. You know how every Sunday we have a different core value listed in the bulletin? That's over top of the financial thing. Don't just look at the financial thing in the bulletin. Look at the core value over top of it that that makes us tick as a church. And this week, it's about service. Just so happened by accident, right? No, that God in his sovereign good providence reminds us with a kiss that one of the core values of being a member of the North Shore Community Church is that you will have a heart to serve. You will do good works. Now, some of you are scratching your heads and you said, but John, just two weeks ago we studied verses 8 and 9 
And we are told we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And you spend an awful lot of time emphasizing not by works. What's going on this morning? And Martin Luther said this. He said, the position of a preacher is a precarious one. For on the one hand, the preacher must preach justification by faith alone. And yet, also, he must preach the necessity of good works that flow from new life. For if, if the preacher only preaches faith, he gets a bunch of false converts who do nothing, and their lives never count for anything for the Lord, and they're just presumptuous. But if he preaches works, he gets a bunch of self-righteous legalists who think that they're going to heaven because of their good works, and they end up in hell, and the preacher will go with them. Whew. So my danger is great here in this pulpit, isn't it? As we walk the tightrope of faith and works, it makes me tremble. I trembled some this week inside. One man said, For if you fail to keep the balance, you will mislead your people and grievously wound those that God has given you to care for. So listen carefully. No one more wholeheartedly than the Apostle Paul repudiated good works as the ground of salvation. And no one more strenuously insisted on good works as a fruit of salvation than the Apostle Paul. It's both. Do not try to get to heaven by your good works. Never think that on the judgment day you will show up and say to God, I am worthy. Let me in. Disabuse yourself of that. Verses 8 and 9 make that clear. But do not show up on that day saying, and I really loved wickedness and all I ever did was care about myself and I had no concern at all for your glory or any impulse inside me to serve anyone else. I just spent my life floating along, pleasing myself night and day. Do not expect that that is your first sentence when you get to the judgment day. For if you are truly Christ's, you are made new. You are made new. And he says you are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Martin Luther insisted. Let's see if I got it on here. It is faith alone that justifies. But faith that justifies can never be alone. That's what James teaches. That's what Luther and Calvin both taught very clearly. And that's what we believe at the North Shore Community Church. So Christ is alive in you. He saved you by his grace. And now there will be fruit in your life. Each of us today has to ask the question, do I live to be served? Or am I learning to serve? Which is it? It's a good analytical question for yourself. 
Do I live to be served? Jesus said that's what the lords of this world are like. They just want to be served. But not so you. We say here we want to be useful to God. He's appointed us in Christ Jesus to do good works. How, how will you do this? Can I encourage you this morning that one of the things that is very important in our church family is that each one of us discovers our servant profile. Your servant profile. And we've actually used this little book. We'll buy it for you, and we give it to every person. If you're new to us and you would like it, it's very helpful. It's called the Network Course. And what we do is we want you to know your spiritual gifts, because the Bible says every one of you has been given a unique and special gift package by God. And then we want you to know your ministry passion, because some people's passion is children. And other people's passion is hospitality. And other people's passion is helping the elderly. And some people's passion is for the poor and social justice. And other people's passion is just evangelism, getting the gospel out. And some people's passion is teenagers. And, and some is music, you know. And we want the right person doing the right thing for the right reasons. And we want you to know your personal style, how God has wired you uniquely. And so this book works through spiritual gifts, ministry passions, personal style, and then it helps you align them all. They are aligned, and from that alignment, you discover your servant profile. And you find then the right fit so that the right people are doing the right things for the right reason. Those of you who decided today to volunteer to sing up front here, <laughs> that would be, we, we, we need help. But we want people, we want the right people doing the right things and for the right reasons, you see. Does that make sense to you? That's how brilliant is the new covenant of God for each of us. We want you to know this. And good works then direct people beyond yourself to him. Jim Westbrook, one of his passions is helping people do precisely this. And I think God appointed Jim to come to work for the church just at this time so that we can make sure every person in our wider church family is able to articulate their servant profile according to the New Testament standards. Jesus had much to say about this. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Paul writes, we should abound to every good work. We should be fruitful in every good work, equipped for every good work. We are to be zealous for every good work. And Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Mark Twain wrote this. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Twain said, Most men die at age 27. We just bury them at age 72. What do you think he meant by that? What Mark Twain meant is that when you're young, you have passion and zeal and, and visions for what you want to do and what you want the world to be. And by the time you become 27, you get cynical. And he says, and there's something that dies in men and women too, 
at about age 27. And then they live a life slogging through the mud until about 72 when we put them in the mud. But that is not for you and that's not for me. Amen. No, no, no. We are not going to die at age 27. We are going to continue to live for we are created in Christ Jesus for adventures of good works which he has created for us to do, appointed us to do. And so my third point is you have, according to the Bible, this eternally designed job description. It says, prepared by God in advance. And this means a few things that we cannot escape. And if you want to understand it today, then you need to hear this phrase, they were prepared in advance for you to do. Now, we started out our study in Ephesians, and some people got their knickers in a twist, as uh, Nina would say, or they got their feathers ruffled, because chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 11 talk all about the sovereignty of God in predestination and election, that God sovereignly loved us and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And the text is clear. So God has set his love upon you. You're here today and not at the country club this morning. You're here today worshiping Jesus Christ because he called you here. He summoned you here. He loves you and he saved you. He put his love upon you, his sovereign electing love on you. Wow. But you know what? That also extends, now we are taught, to the very good works that he has appointed for you to do. And before I give a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty, and Jesus says... If you see someone thirsty, give them a cup of cold water. Even before I do that, God in all eternity has planned that he would get glory through the distribution of cool water to the lips of someone who was thirsty and parched. And that is tremendous. That is wonderful and amazing, astounding, spine-tingling to me. That before you go out and plant a tree to God's glory, uh, before he, he decided that before the first planet was put in place. You're to do good works. I'll tell you another thing it means. <laughs> it means that there's a whole range of good works. And good works are not just the big public good works. You know? We have, we, we have people in our church who God is blessing using very prominently on the board of Youth for Christ or the Bowery Mission down in Manhattan or people who, who praise to the Lord. They have, they have significant public ministries. We have Sunday school teachers and staff members and leaders. They are public servants. Praise the Lord. But good works are not just public stuff. Some good works are public. Some good works are private. When you get up in the morning and you pray and you have a quiet time with God, that is a good work in Christ Jesus that God called you and appointed you to have. Nobody else sees it. In fact, Jesus said, pray in secret. So you gave, who gave that $47,000 last week? I don't know. And you don't know. Good works were done. They were done in secret. That's good. Jesus says they should be. Other good works are done very publicly, and Jesus saw people doing good works in public and sometimes commended them. So that's okay. Some public, some private. Some are big good works. Some are small. 
good works. John Morkin tramps around the jungles of Benin, you know, know, taking on the voodoo priests, preaching the gospel to them. Hey, that's pretty big stuff. And some of you just put a hand on the shoulder of a colleague at work, and you say, I'll pray for you. No big deal. But it's a good, good work. It's a crown for God's glory. Do you see what I'm saying? A whole range of beautiful, beautiful variety of good works. Some are done in the church. Some are done in the world as a witness to Christ. He has appointed you to do good works. I ask you today, and it just came to me in something I was reading this week, a man compared a salmon and a jellyfish. And he said this, are you a salmon or a jellyfish when it comes to good works? And I thought about this. And he said, he told the story of the salmon that swims down the stream and out into the ocean and lives its life sailing through until that impulse comes to turn back to home and The salmon swims back to the original river and up the stream and sometimes up the waterfalls and fights off predators and forces its way back to its destiny, back to its destination, swimming and pushing and going. It's glorious if you've ever seen some of the footage of these wild salmon swimming upstream. And then there's the jellyfish. Kind of lies on the top of the water, dragging its tentacles stinging and annoying other people. And it just sort of goes wherever it goes and feels like whatever it feels. Are you more of a jellyfish or are you more of a salmon? If you belong to Jesus Christ... In Christ Jesus, he has appointed you to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. As he summons the salmon up the stream, this inexorable climb forward, so he will do with you and with us, with us. This is my prayer. This was John's prayer. This is our prayer. He will do this with us. And we, we will do good works, and men will see them and glorify not us, but our Father who is in heaven. One of the worst days of my life came when I was reading through the Gospel of John in chapter 6. And I came to the words of Jesus who said, For I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And I realized that I had lived all my life to do my will. I was already a Christian. But I came to see, I was, it was still all about me, doing my will. And my master, my Lord, my Savior said this, for I came down from, I came down from heaven not to do my will. Well, if anybody should be allowed to do his will, it should be Jesus. But he says, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, his heavenly Father. And he loved to do his Father's will. What about you? 
Can you join me today? You know, it was the worst day, but it was the best day. One of the best days of my life because I said, Jesus, teach me how to pray that, say that same sentence. And I think in some small measure over these years, he's been teaching me how not to want my will, but the will of him who sent me. What about you? Can you join me today and, and ask Jesus to do that for you? I'd like us to bow our heads now and, and uh, come to him in prayer. And I'm going to invite you to ask him to use you in 2010, for you to tell him that you're available to him, not to do your will, but to do his will. Our Heavenly Father, it gets tricky for me right at this point, because too often with my right hand I say, I want to do your will, and then with my left hand I say, but this is, I know this is your will, Lord. And I ask you to help me withdraw that impulse And just to say, I want your good and perfect will that I may serve you and serve my family and serve my church family and serve my community for your glory. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that this is an adventure. We pray that we will grow. It's not always to our great pleasure, Lord. We sometimes have to do things unpleasant, like wash the feet of other people. But, oh, would you give us your joy and your thrill, the thrill of serving, the thrill of being like you. And we do it not to be saved, but because we are saved and because we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.